So the paper is Toward Feminist Energy Systems, Why Women and Solar Panels Aren't Enough. I wrote that with two colleagues that I have at Virginia Tech. It's the May Apple Energy Collective, Shannon Bell and Christine Lebusky. And the May Apple is this flower that's native to Appalachia and where we live. Um, and it's it's rhizomatic, which is cool. So it's a plant that, um, you know, grows through these underground horizontal connections. It's really, it's it's really this beautiful green that comes up in the spring and kind of carpets the forest floor with green, and then has this beautiful white flower, but it's often hidden underneath the green leaf. So you have to look for the blossom underneath. And we really met each other serendipitously. Shannon happened to be my neighbor and our kids are friends. And then Christine and I met because she had um, used one of my other articles about drones for her research on drones. And we just became friends first, which is probably, maybe that's also unusual in academia, I don't know, but I think it's a nice way to start a collaboration. And um, I honestly don't think, I well, I know that I couldn't have written that article by myself. Um, for one thing, we were doing something a little more big and bold in that article, trying to sort of state a field. And all of the citations are really to, you know, do the feminist practice of of really making sure that we included all the work that had been done and brought it all together in one place. So first, I think, to kind of take that big <laughs> um, tone or feeling is helpful to do when you're part of a team because then it doesn't feel so, um, I don't know, arrogant. <laughs> I mean, we're all from different disciplines. So you also feel that with more people, you're more likely to understand um, bigger parts of the field and feel that maybe you're not missing things. It was also the first thing I wrote collaboratively ever. I'm kind of a very solitary researcher and writer, and I didn't know how the process would be, if I was going to like it, and so I think it was important that we were friends first, and that meant that we could find our way into our writing process and be really, I think, gentle with each other, but also honest. And we ended up dividing it and writing um, different parts alone, but then bringing it together and editing each other's and, you know, deleting things that repeated and adding things and so forth, um, and really conceptualizing the whole thing together. So uh, yeah, I hope to do more work like that in the future. And I think the third thing I would say about the collaborative process that's really important is that it makes me feel safer as a writer because with the um, Petromasculinity article, I was uh, trolled by the far right 
And so I was thinking and feeling that writing with others, you just feel like if something's going to happen, you won't be alone. And of course, I now know and feel less alone if it did happen to me. But when it happened to me, I felt very alone. Um, so I think if you're writing about feminism or the far right or things that might um, get a pushback, that writing in a collective is a, a really important way to protect yourself and your team, you know. The citation piece is very important. And I have not done that as well. I mean, I don't think I've, I'm not saying there's something wrong with how I've written before, but certainly it was something that I was much more conscious of for this. Um, and I think I'll take that forward, you know, to, to future works. Um, when, you, when you were asking me about, um, citations, it, it brought to mind this book I read this year by Max Leboiron called Pollution is Colonialism. And I was on the book award committee for um, the Clay Morgan Award for Environmental Political Theory, and this book won. But Max Leboiron is a, an indigenous scientist, and the way that they use citations I've never seen before. It was really um, transformative, and I encourage anyone who's interested in citation practices to check out this book because it's um, not only is it very generous and naming so many people, naming people that there, that there were conversations with, naming workshops, um, many, many indigenous um friends and collaborators, but also there was a conversational style in the footnotes that was almost counter to the formality of the academic tone. I'm not sure I could replicate or take up LeBaron's strategy, but I th think what it points to is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of politics in those footnotes, and there's I don't know that that has really been, um, I don't know that we've fully kind of unearthed strategies for doing that well. And I think the freshness of that book points, points to that. So as we were writing other feminist strategies, um, one of them was, was actually about how we ourselves are going to be cited and what we were concerned about <laughs> is the tendency for multiple authors to be named alphabetically and then be collapsed into et al behind the first author. And so we had talked about, I was the most junior one of the three of us. So we had talked about, should my name go first as first author? Because then do I need the credit the most in terms of promotion? But then we really, I mean, we had a lot of discussions about this and we really felt that we wanted to come up with this name in part because we wanted to have a name. We wanted, we're doing future work together, but also because we wanted to be cited with that name. 
But what was interesting is the journal really didn't like that and want to do that. So the journal, we had to work out with the journal how to include the name of our collective. And also we ended up just conforming to the alphabetical citation and it has since been cited as Bell et al., which is not what we what we wanted, but I, I think that points to more work that needs to be done in how people get named because it it wasn't so much important to us that our names were cited. It was important that our collective effort be cited as opposed to a list of individuals. I would say we haven't run into a lot of dissent among us in terms of, you know, really strong uh, differences of feeling about politics or some important piece of the ethics behind it. But where there is sometimes um, some push and pull, I would say, in the process is that we come from different fields. And so we're used to writing in different styles and also using different artifacts and different methods even um, to make similar points. And so part of it, in my, in my view, is about a kind of generosity and flexibility to be okay with something that may feel un unfamiliar or may, may even seem like, well, I could make that point you know, in this way, and it would feel to me like that would be better, but made in a different way might appeal to more readers. So I would say that, I mean, there's really not much tension between us. We're ac we actually have this lovely relationship, but if it's not really tension, it's just something to be worked around or paid attention to. And um, in terms of presenting our work together, um, Sometimes when we're all together, I mean, it, it tends to work well because we took different parts of writing in the article. And so we often will just divide things that way because that's what we're familiar with. Um, but I'll, sometimes what happens is um, we'll get invitations. One of us will get an invitation and they'll sort of want to just be inviting us and we always have to say, well, no, we're a team. Like you have to invite all of us or you have to pay for all of us. Or um, <laughs> another example was um, we are trying to make a kind of environmental justice center or initiative at our university. And the college wanted to make a video that included us talking about this initiative. And the audiovisual people, you know, really were like, well, only we only really need one of you to come and talk. And we only really have a microphone for one person. And and Shannon really insisted, you know, she had this relationship that kind of made this video happen. And she really insisted, no, we all three have to be there. And it ended up a little awkward because we said, okay, you can just mic one of us. And Shannon prepared and did the talking. And the two of us just sit, stood by her side and had to figure out like what do we do with our bodies but it was important for all three of us to be there so um I think we just decided early on that we're gonna 
you know, share in everything and just push as much as we can to have that happen. Actually, just answering all the questions I have, I'm thinking, oh, my my collaborators should be here to help me. And I'm thinking, I hope they like what I'm saying in answer to these questions. Um, but what the audience that we were thinking about, there were several audiences, but I think the main one was actually energy studies itself and um, the broader academic, but also policy world around energy in which we decided that many people in that world would have a very, very simple or basic or even wrong idea of what feminism was. And so we made the choice to not assume that the people reading this were going to share or understand from the start what feminism was. Because one of the biggest um, interventions that we hoped for or one of the things that we wanted to comment on was the way that feminism in the study of energy had been narrowed into a question of what are women doing with fuel. And to us, that represented a sort of very narrow understanding of feminism. So in order to say that, we had to then say, well, what do we mean by feminism and why is it about more than women? So yes, I think it's both um, the problem of <laughs> how that word is understood in the United States more generally, but also academically. Um, I don't really know what the culture is in Spain, for example, but in the US outside of fields of critical theory or women's and gender studies, people who take it upon themselves to read and cite and work within and around feminist work, it's not, I, I don't think that this understanding, which to us feels very <laughs> like introductory feminist class, I don't think that that's widely understood. And, um, you know, we were fortunate to have, especially Christine, part of of our collective because she is appointed in women's and gender studies and she teaches a lot of undergraduates about, you know, she has this experience of walking people who don't know any much of, or only know about feminism, what they read in the newspaper or see on TV and kind of teaching people. So I think that was really a strength that she brought. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't see the more positive side in terms of people finding that word helpful in their work broadly that I didn't see that um, at first because of the way academia works and you know things it's sometimes it takes some time for people to read things and for ideas conversations to happen but the trolling was the first thing that happened and um I am trying to tell the story more because I have since realized that this is a new, very common reality for academics, but also journalists. I think especially journalists get this in 
intensely, um, just constantly. And I, I honestly don't know how they withstand it. And I think many of them, I've read people quitting, especially women, because of how sustained these attacks can be. But the way it happens often in the U.S. in academia, in the way it happened to me, um, there are these different sites, but one of one of the big ones is called Campus Reform, and it's funded by far-right people. And um, they, I think they must have some kind of RSS search on academic articles, and they probably search for terms like masculinity and feminism and racism and <laughs> whatever. I'm not sure, but I mean, looking at, if you look at the people, um, there's an associated professor watch list. And if you go look, you'll just see a sea of many women, many people of color, um, people who identify as LGBTQ. Um, so it's very consistent, the people who are attacked and targeted. Um, and what campus reform does is they'll, you know, they saw that this article had come out online and they operate as if they're like a student media site. So a student, students run this. I think they're paid, probably paid pretty well. So it's like a student job. And a student wrote me and said, well, I want to interview you about this. I'm from campus reform. And I, I didn't know what campus reform was. So I Googled it and I saw, you know, articles writing about what they do. And I said, no, thanks. <laughs> but they and then and then I contacted, you know, I knew that this was going to come out and I knew I had I could expect what the results would be. So basically, they create kind of a target by campus reform will simply say, this person wrote all this stuff. And then that becomes like the central place where people find who to attack and then it becomes this kind of viral thing for a little bit. And um, it was, I guess I just didn't expect, I think I had heard that people got attacked this way and I just thought, well, that's not fun. That's, that's too bad. But I didn't, understand how it really felt to me it was very traumatic like it was really scary um to open your email and never know if you're gonna get these strange emails and um and threats and and just to know also that I mean I didn't look but just to know that online there were gonna be all these people attacking you and um, saying horrible things about you. Um, you know, this is like ubiquitous now. So many people experience this, but, and I think in some ways that almost makes it feel normal. And I, it really shouldn't. It's really, it's really terrible to go through. And I, I mean, I almost thought about quitting after because I thought I don't want to be writing publicly if this is what that means. Um, so I took some time off and 
Um, I feel a lot better now, but I, I mean, I still don't want that to happen again. And then in the ensuing months and years since it was published, I got a lot, a much more fuller picture of what the feedback was. And I got a lot of people contacting me and finding it helpful and wanting to have conversations. And so then I don't know that it, like, it, it certainly doesn't erase what happened, but it then it became helpful to feel like, well, there was a point to writing this. It was helpful even if it exposed me to this other thing. Well, I think two reasons. I think one is um, petromasculinity, or a few reasons actually. One is petromasculinity in the title names masculinity. And I have since spoken with other feminists who do work in different public settings and they tell and I've heard anecdotally people say if you go in a space and say I'm, I'm going to talk about feminism or gender people are like okay sure maybe to talk about women we all love women great you know but the moment you say I want to talk about masculinity like the reaction is very different um, it feels like an attack from the front and and you're right you might talk about feminism and that can be equally critical but somehow yeah so I think the masculinity piece um is different because you know for example feminist energy we didn't get trolled for that even though now every time I write something and I told my co-authors I don't know if my name is just now going to be forever like every time I write anything it's going to be um, already flagged. I like. I don't know how this works, but no, I haven't. We didn't get trolled for that. So that's one of the things. I think the second thing is I wrote that piece with a lot of anger because it was really it was right after Trump won, and um, I think the language therefore is more. There's a lot of passion in it, <laughs> and so. You know, maybe that makes it feel more um, readable to beyond academia. People read it more and kind of identify with it, but on in both ways, like people who who relate to it, but also people who feel offended. The third one is, you know, that it's just it's about contemporary politics. So um it's not like something that's more historically grounded. It just feels more academic. And um, I guess also it's the way just that media works now. I mean, some things just have a more kind of, um, they are spread more easily, right? Sometimes when you are thinking more slowly about something in a more extended way, like I was in the book, um, people don't have the patience for that. And and a lot of these viral, I'm now talking about, you know, just the attack on it. A lot of the viral attack on it is around things that can be very easily digested and very easily shared as, you know, look how terrible this is. But I also think maybe that's why the word is helpful to people is because it sort of names something that you can understand with just the name. Um, so I guess it has both aspects to it. Whereas the book, 
is more is like more complicated and there's not I don't really have you know terms like that that can travel you know I don't want to say there's communication wise I think there's the need for all kinds of communication so there's the need for both um, and I guess if you're a writer and you're going to write something that is going to carry or travel or you think might travel like that you should expect that it's going to travel in both ways <laughs> it's and it's kind of a vicious landscape out there of social media it's really cruel the pandemic is really interesting in terms of health and climate change be because the resistance to it especially in the US or the resistance to vaccines and the resistance to masking and the resistance to the notion of public health is has gone the route of conspiracies which feel very similar and are sometimes actually connected to the climate denial conspiracies and a similar thing i've wondered if there's a similar thing happening there where um i mentioned that the climate denial of the far right in some ways is feeling more the existential threat of climate change than the center left is and you know there might be something happening there too in terms of all the conspiracies around vaccines where there's a feeling that corporate medicine is not good and of course then it's being expressed in a way that is really harmful to communities and oversimplified and a conspiracy and going into an alternate universe that that make that does make me very very angry because i live i mean it's very different in virginia where i am than what i've experienced in paris where i was a few days ago and here in terms of masking and also in terms of vaccination and um and yet i want to acknowledge that i think it's right to question the motivations of a corporation like Pfizer and sometimes when the center left in the media in the US is responding to anti-vaccine it's all about oh these people don't understand science and they don't trust science and we need to teach them science and they're just totally wrong without any i mean of course among critical scholars there's an acknowledgement especially for communities of color for black communities in the US who have been historically abused by medicine by the medical system but there's not a broader acknowledgement that we should question Pfizer and you know unfortunately what you have to do is be able to think about the world with complexity and say well Pfizer can be a corporation that we shouldn't trust with bad motivations that needs to be called to account and it can also produce a vaccine that saves lives and is effective and we have to be able to think those things together but you know it's not if you think about it that way there's more you can have more sympathy and understand more why people why it makes sense to people to to go down this path of 
vaccine conspiracy. Of course, there's a whole other part of the equation, which is the association with Trump, his failure to respond to the pandemic, the desire for people to support that by saying, well, it doesn't matter that he failed because the pandemic is a lie anyway. That's part of it, too. But in terms of thinking of the anti-vax conspiracy alongside climate denial, I do think in both cases, there's this unconscious sense of conspiracies happening. And there are. Oil companies conspired to spread climate denial. Right now, you know, why do we not have generic vaccines being spread worldwide? Why is the global south not doesn't still doesn't have access to vaccines? There are big problems happening that are not being recognized and and so I wonder if there could be ways of communicating and reaching out to people by if that is first acknowledged more directly in public discourse. It's very individualized. So if our lives are not healthy, we are expected to work out more and eat better and count our sleep and count our steps. And um, as consumers kind of fix that or purchase our way out of it. Um, well, I don't know that I would ever want to give a definition of health or the other word that I've noticed that I use and that is used very, is kind of used often without definition is well-being. And I sort of caught myself using it a couple of times and I realized, no, wait, should I be used? I mean, there are these words that become useful for expressing something, but then don't get defined and... Uh, that can be a problem too. It's always good to slow down. So it's, a, you know, it's good to ask like, what is meant by well-being? What is meant by health? And I do think that that has to be worked out locally. Um, and not to say relativistically, because you can think about local as having a lot of trans-global connections between local people and local movements, but I am not sure we should have, you know, one definition for everyone. But what we can all do is agree upon the unhealthiness or the feeling that the modern capitalist system is not contributing to health. So we, I think we can do that without saying that we all have the same idea of what health should be. And that's important. Well, first, I have to say I would credit my teachers and mentors with um, the education I had that led me to be interested, I mean, in certain things. So that was um, Daniel Dudney, but and also um, Jane Bennett. And Jane is Jane's work is really um, renowned in political theory, but more broadly, she wrote a book called Vibrant Matter. Um, so she's at the forefront of something that's sometimes called new materialism. I don't know how she would feel about that word, I should ask her, but um, her work is really trying to point to the agency and importance of matter and beyond the human. And she 
was a scholar who gave a lot of words and examples and terms to that discipline and um, and also to me as a scholar. So, so that's kind of the more near-term question of how I started to think about things like energy and be interested in them as meaning more than kind of just dull, dead matter that humans act upon. Um, but as a scholar, um, it's interesting we ended with health because that's I, I studied um, biochemistry in university and a lot of poetry. So I kind of was a humanities person who did science and I didn't study politics hardly at all. It's amazing to everyone that I ended up. <laughs> like a lot of my friends were studying politics and then they went and did different things with their career. And I was the one who didn't take hardly any politics classes and ended up as, you know, with that as my career. Um, and then I went to medical school and I left, I took a leave of absence and never went back after a year um, because I just felt like I had come from this more liberal arts education and medicine started to feel not cerebral enough for me. I realized I was more wanting the philosophy and the humanities and I missed that and I didn't necessarily want much as I admire all of my friends who went on to become medical doctors, that wasn't my calling. And and I, I wanted to be like <laughs> when I was young and starting medical school, my hero was Paul Farmer. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a doctor who's worked a lot in Haiti on um, malaria, spreading anti-malarial medication to the global poor and so I was really interested in justice, but I thought, you know, I'm going to be a doctor and address that. And then I realized, well, I think I want to understand more why, why we don't have medicine in the global south and why there are these disparities. Um, so that's when I started studying global politics and polit political theory and fell in love with it. Um, but I tell that background because I think then you know, that drew me to people like Jane Bennett and to that program of critical work. And um, they were asking these questions relevant to environmental politics and climate change. And, um, and I think this background I had in science and medicine where it gave me the feeling that I could, I think sometimes people who haven't studied any science are made to feel that they can't say anything about it or they, especially if it's math or physics, that they're, the, somehow they'll get it wrong or, um, and so I felt like, well, no, I, f I think I can sort of wade my way through it and I, I can say something about it. But also I had always come at it from, you know, poetry and history and so I, um, wanted to bring that approach to it. And in doing so, discovered the field of science and technology studies, which, to be honest, if I knew that field existed, that might be what I should have gotten my PhD in. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I should be in that field, but then 
now I'm thinking about growth and debt and maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, so I have a 9 and 11-year-old. And um, to me, that I, I think I harbor a lot of um, resentment about the American system of work because it continues to not provide any support for child care. Um, and that was true in my graduate program. I, I mean, my advisors were supportive in the sense that no one was going to fire me, but um, materially there was not support. There was not even at that time a child care center on campus. Um, and so I took out student loans to pay for some of the child care I got, and I did. I worked weekends, and it took me almost nine years to finish my PhD because I had both of my kids during that time. Um, and you know, still, I think I have so many friends who've experienced all kinds of different um, hardships around parenting. Men and women, but it falls a lot. It falls a lot on women, um, and you know, I think that is that personal part of it does draw me to feminism, but also was behind some of my interest in work and ways of working. Um, and what's interesting about what appealed to me about Kathy Weeks was that when she talks about, for example, a shorter work week and having more people having more time, she really <laughs> emphasizes, especially for, for people who are parents, that that's not just time that you play with your kids more. It's also that people, everyone, you know, should not only share reproductive labor, but have time from it. That's not just work time. And I think for all parents, they could identify with that when you're not working, you're doing other kinds of work. And sometimes that's very joyful. Like, I don't I don't think of parenting as just this hardship. It's really joyful kind of work. But, you know, you come home and there's a whole another set of hours of tasks ahead of you. Um, and so it, it continues to be a factor, I think, for me. I mean, I've really early on decided that I didn't, I wanted to try not to burn out and I protect my weekends, I protect my evenings, and I just accept that I'm gonna be slower to, a lot of my peers in graduate school are several years ahead of me in terms of promotion and things that they've done. And I've just tried it's hard. I have to continually remind myself to accept that it's going to be slower because I'm choosing. It's not like I'm choosing a radical thing. I'm just choosing to not work on weekends and not work all night, you know, not work till midnight after my kids go to sleep um, and take holidays with them and really try to pay attention to other things. And I'm trying to learn the fiddle and, you know, I'm trying to like practice <laughs> what I can't, what I'm talking about within the confines of a system that doesn't support that at all. So, um, 
But I remember when I got this position that I have now at Virginia Tech, um, they wanted to give the job also to a second academic um, and weren't able to secure a second position for her, but she's amazing. And she is from Scandinavia. And she, I talked to her and said, oh, I'm sorry that it didn't work out. It would have been great for us to work together. And she said, well, that's okay because I have a postdoc at home and she had a two-year-old and she had all of the support. And so it wasn't, you know, a tenure track position and it wasn't necessarily going to be as much money, but it provided so much extra um, health and well-being for her and her family that she was fine and she was looking at what was going to be offered in the U.S. and expensive health care and no child care support. Um, even in Virginia Tech, they keep saying, you know, there's a shortage of spots in the daycares that we have. And there's just everyone always says this is a problem and we're going to have committees to solve it. And but really the solution is we just have to pay people more money to work in daycare centers. No one's I mean, no one's willing to do that. And so therefore we keep making committees to solve the problem of a shortage of daycare. I don't know the answer to that. My nine year old just the other day. um what were we talking? Oh, he loves to watch um, nature films and all these documentaries. And he was saying, oh, they're all about, he loves animals and the forest. Like many kids, many kids, I think, just instinctively are tree huggers. <laughs> and he said, all of, I love this film we watched but it's all about how the animals are dying and why does the world have to be so bad mom and he asked me this question like this and I was thinking when I was his age I didn't have that feeling but yeah everything he watches and everything he hears from us is pretty dire and I didn't know how to answer that and I I kind of wanted to protect him from it like and tell him it's okay and we're doing all these great things and you know you could you too can join the movement and but i also felt like i didn't want to i don't want to lie to him and i just kind of i didn't i didn't know that i had a good answer other than just to give him a hug and say i know it's really sad but i mean that's how a 9 year old they f kids feel that and I don't, I don't, does any, do you all know what to do? Yeah, and I'm raising two white, soon, you know, people. And, you know, right now they identify as boys. So they could become white, two white men. So it's really important to me for them to understand the history of racism, to understand American history, to understand feminist thinking, but that's a lot for for kids to be brought up to understand that we're very privileged because of this big history of violence that our family contributed to. 
in some cases, literally, because I've learned that I'm the direct descendant of the first governor of Tennessee, who was part of, you know, campaigns that that went to war upon um, American Indians and, you know, forced them off the land. So one thing, um, this other artist that I that I was talking to, um, he had this idea. Um, he was thinking about working with Petra masculinity in his work, but he had this exhibit about his father and the way he talked about it really has been helpful to me. And he talked about um, making decisions about what we pass on. So thinking about the exhibit was things that he had inherited from his father and thinking about what does he inherit and what does he want to give to his son And so I sort of, sometimes I'm trying to talk about it that way, like we are this chain of people who are carrying one generation to the next. And we, what we, our function is to say, I'm not going to pass that on, but think about, well, what are the things that we can find, not just in our family, but in the history of America that we do want to pass on? And I do think for all that it's, hard for Americans to, for especially white Americans, to be real about American history. There's a lot of exciting things in American history in terms of how much at the vanguard liberation movements there have been. Um, So yes, it's about really being accountable to the history of slavery, but also thinking, and this is the site of movements for against racism black lives matter being the most recent um instantiation of that that have pushed the conversation in remarkable new ways about what freedom means and that that can be american you know that is american history too and that can be something that you could be proud of you know that history of insert history of longing for freedom, history of unions, for example. You know, what are the histories that we want to pass down and which are the ones that we want to, to stop? <laughs>